Dear Lord, we give you thanks and praise that we are uh, able to worship and praise and proclaim Jesus every single day, no matter where we are or what struggles we might face. And we pray, Lord, now that you would open your most holy word to us, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would show us Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. What is it that makes someone worth following? When you think about who you're going to support or who you're going to trust to lead you, what's the deciding factor? It's a question we wrestle with probably more often than we realize. Every time we vote, we decide based on questions like these. And that, that's true whether it's for the prime minister or, or premier or who's in charge of the condo board or the local hockey league. And most of us would probably say that it's, it's a combination of things, right? What, what a person says, how they say it, whether their actions and their words line up. Last week, we, we began our journey through Mark's gospel by seeing that right from the beginning, Mark presents Jesus as the unique son of God. And so whether we believe in him or not is of the utmost importance. This week, Mark begins something he will spend the rest of his gospel doing, showing that Jesus is a king worth following and he is a king like no other. Over and over again in this gospel, we will see Jesus' uniqueness as God's servant king come to redeem his people. In our passage today, Mark shows us how Jesus is worth following by presenting the content of the king's message, the call the king makes, and the authority that he has. Let me ask us another question. If someone asked you to summarize the gospel, how would you do it? Coming out of last week's sermon, some of us might say, Jesus, <laughs> and just leave it at that. And that, that'd be a, an okay answer. Yeah. Others might point to something like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, in our passage, we have the very first words of Jesus that Mark records, which he calls the words of the gospel of God. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This, in a sense, is how Mark summarizes the entire gospel message. And so we want to unpack this a little bit. The content of the summary shows us in part why Jesus is worth following. It's because we see that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. How do we see that? Well, Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Now, the Greek word for time used here is kairos. And what's in view with this word is not so much uh, time as in, you know, it's currently 10.51 a.m., but the time, a specific time moment of great consequence. That is the time that's come. And the time that Jesus has in mind is the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Messiah. It is the time of God's redemptive purpose come to earth. 
And that time has come because Jesus has come. He is the fulfillment of prophecies going all the way back to Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. For example, Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Isaiah prophesied that from the stump of Jesse would come a branch that would bear fruit. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He is the long prophesied Messiah who fulfills the promise of God and has been sent at the time of God's redemptive purpose. And that time ushers in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, as we have spoken about in the past, is about God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That is what Jesus has brought. That's what's at hand. Actually, another way we could translate at hand is come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, why could Jesus say that? Well, it's because he's come. Jesus has come. And wherever God is, that is where his kingdom is. And that's exactly what Jesus is announcing. God has come for his people in the person of Jesus Christ. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel according to Jesus. Now, imagine for a moment being in the shoes of the people of Israel. They've had a pretty rough history. If we think about it, you know, they've been exiled, they've been conquered, they've been ruled over by brutal dictators. And all while this is happening, they have God's promise ringing in their ears. They're looking for the time that the promised Messiah would come. And now here comes Jesus announcing that that time has come. What might they be feeling? How might they react to this? You know, it's interesting, some of us might currently be feeling like we're in a bit of a wilderness period, right? Or that we're in exile, we're, we're shut up in our houses with very little freedom of movement. How might it feel if someone came to you and said, the time has come, open the doors, freedom has come? And that, that would sound pretty good right now, wouldn't it? And in a sense, that's very much what Jesus is proclaiming to the people, that his time has come, the kingdom has come, freedom from from sin and all that is weighed upon them has come. Now, if that's what the king's announcing, how might he expect people to respond? How might he expect us to react? And actually, our text shows us that because Jesus comes bringing the kingdom and he comes with a calling. You see, as the king, he gets to lay out the parameters of citizenship in his kingdom. And they're this, repentance and belief. Citizenship in the kingdom means turning, both a turning towards and a turning from. Jesus calls his people to repent, to turn away from sin. Repenting is it's a decisive action to turn away from the, the sin in our life. And the part that we really struggle with is that this turn is meant to be complete. We struggle with a, a complete turn because the truth is 
we want to have our, our quote-unquote normal life with a, with a side of Jesus. <laughs> we want to stop lying, but we want to gossip about people behind their backs. We don't want to hurt anyone physically, but we sure will use words that cut to the heart when someone annoys us or makes us angry. We'll be sure to post up on Facebook exactly how that person's made us feel. We want to be forgiven, but we don't really want to forgive those who hurt us. What we want is like a 45 degree or a 90 degree turn, not, not the complete 180 that Jesus calls us to. But the reason that this turn must be complete is that we are turning not just away from sin, but toward Jesus, the King. And citizenship in his King, in his kingdom, means total devotion and allegiance to him. And, you know, I love that Jesus says, believe in the gospel, because we tend to approach belief as this sort of intangible thing, this, this uh, undefinable thing, something that I just know because I just know it. But Jesus calls us to have faith in something, to believe in something, and specifically in the gospel. But remember what we said last week. Jesus himself is the gospel. And so what he is saying here is turn away from sin and toward me. Have faith not in faith itself or a set of philosophical principles, but faith in Jesus. He is the object of our faith and nothing and no one is meant to hinder us from coming to and being with him. That's the call he makes. We actually have a couple pictures of what this looks like in our passage. You see, immediately after announcing the content of the gospel and the call that it makes on us to repent and to believe in him, Jesus goes and calls some of his disciples. Verses 16 through 20, we read this. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus walks up to these guys and says, hey, you, you guys over there, come and follow me. And they're like, sure, no problem, I'm in. No questions asked. It's an image of wholehearted response to Jesus's call, to commitment and belief in him. It's made even clearer by what they leave behind. Peter and Andrew are in the middle of fishing. And they hear Jesus' call and they just walk away, leaving their nets behind. James and John walk away from their fishing gear and their father. Now, fishing was these men's livelihood. It was how they knew that they were going to eat. It was their security. And so was their father. Your family were the people you could trust in, those who had your back. 
having a father meant you had the possibility of inheritance. And with that, without that, well, you were in trouble. Yet when Jesus calls them away from all of that, they follow. The point is this. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to complete allegiance and trust in him. He calls us away from the things we have placed our trust in so that we can place our trust in him. We often place our trust in countless other things like money or our education level or our governments, <laughs> but perhaps most commonly in our family and our work. And the point here is not that families are bad or that, that work is bad or that being a genuine believer in Jesus means walking away from your income or giving up your family. That, that's not the point here at all. The point is that belief in Jesus requires a change in perspective. Because if we find our ultimate security in work or family or in anything other than Jesus, we will be disappointed in the end. But the remarkable thing is that as we turn to Christ, as we submit to the call to believe in him and have wholehearted faith in him, he doesn't remove work from our lives, nor does he remove families and good relationships. Instead of removing those things, he redeems them. He gives us eyes to see them in a proper light as gifts from God but not the things that will meet our ultimate needs. Only the king can do that. Only Jesus. So now maybe you're thinking that, well, I do believe in Jesus, <laughs> but I still sin. I repent and I ask God to lead me by his Holy Spirit and to make me more like Jesus. I ask him to give me a proper understanding of work and family and all these other things that I've trusted in for ultimate security, but I keep getting it wrong. I keep sinning. Well, to you, I say, you're in good company. <laughs> Paul struggled with the same problem. He confessed that because of his weaknesses, he often did what he didn't want to do, and he didn't do what he, what he wanted to do. I actually think there's something comforting almost, maybe even merciful in this. When Jesus calls these, these first disciples, he tells them that they will become fishers of men. And most of the time when we hear that, we, we start thinking about evangelism, right? And we should. That, that's proper. We are meant to share our faith with others. It's something that Jesus is calling his, his disciples to. And it's something that he calls literally all Christians to do. And, and exploring that certainly would be a worthwhile sermon. It's, it's just not this sermon. So the word that we want to see that helps us in our conversation today is become. Become fishers. You see, as we follow Jesus, we do have moments of sliding, let's say. Of, of 45 and, and 90 degree turns. Our faith wavers or temptation overcomes us and we have to go back and repent 
again and again and again and receive forgiveness again and again and again. And our God is merciful to do just that. To over time keep us more in line with Jesus and to help us keep this new perspective that he's given us. And that the fact that it's a process seems merciful to me. Think about those moments in your life when you've come face to face with your sin, when you've had to face your own sinfulness. It doesn't feel great, does it? <laughs> now imagine that the Father confronted you with all your sin for all time, all at once. That sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? I couldn't handle that. I remember a, a friend of mine once told me that they prayed that God would help them to know the weight of their sin, even just a glimpse of it. That's a very bold prayer and one that, frankly, I don't have the guts to pray. And they told me that just for a moment, God gave them just a, the tiniest taste of what it was, and it overwhelmed them. Their sin was too great, and of course it is. None of us are equipped to bear the weight of our sin. Only Jesus could do that. And in his mercy, God doesn't drop a hammer on us and force us to deal with all our sin at once. But over time, he peels back all the layers of our sin, one at a time, each time getting deeper and deeper, another layer, and then another, and then another. It's his mercy. Jesus calls us to turn away from our sin, and then he makes us, he helps us become who he wants us to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, the king who ushers in God's kingdom, and the one who calls us to turn from sin to life. And finally, he is worth following because of the authority that he has. In the last section of our passage, we read of Jesus going into the synagogue and teaching the people and then casting out a demon, and the people are amazed. And the word that is repeated throughout this account is authority. They were amazed because of his authority. And the Greek word here is exousia. And that word is typically used to denote authority not like that of, of just an important person, but of divine authority. Now we think, of course he is divine authority. He just drove out a demon. But look closely at the text, friends. What is it that first showed his divine authority? It's not the driving out of a demon. It's his teaching. Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, this is not a rebuke of the scribes, though there will be plenty of that in time. It's, it's an elevation of Jesus. The teaching he has is unlike any other. Any other that they've heard before, because it is authoritative. It has divine power. Can you imagine what that would be like? And actually, the language of our, our passage helps us to see what it would be like, at least for the original audience. You see, when we hear astonished, we tend to view that as, wow, this is amazing. I need to hear more of this. That's actually not what it was. Many scholars point out to us that what was being experienced here was closer to fear than joy. They hear this proclaimed word, and it is utterly different than anything they have heard. But why would that create fear? 
Wouldn't you be excited about hearing this powerful, authoritative teach? Well, not necessarily. Because if Jesus has come and is preaching, repent and believe in the gospel, and that message is coming with power from on high, it gets us thinking, doesn't it? It gets us wondering, well, what do I have to repent from? How is Jesus going to change things? Because the truth is we like our lives. We don't want things to change. We're comfortable with, with our sins. We think my choices don't affect others, so why can't I live how I want? What's so wrong with, with our lives? Just live and let live. That's what I always say. Truthfully, I never actually say that. <laughs> met a friend once, and at the time, he was not a believer in Jesus at all. And we get together, and, and he would always ask about Jesus and faith and all of it and why I believed. And he'd listen respectfully, but then eventually he'd get to all the reasons why he wasn't a Christian. It's irrational. How can you follow a God like the one in the Old Testament? He's just angry and, and looking to kill everyone who doesn't like him. We'd have these conversations about those questions and others, and I'd, I'd give my answers. And Eventually, though, the real problem would come out. I'm already a good person. And if I believe in Jesus, well, I have to be all in. And So what would my friends think? My kids aren't believers. Would they think I'm crazy? Does it mean I can't spend time watching sports or going fishing? Do I have to read my Bible and pray all the time? The real hindrance was that Jesus would change things. If he is who he says he is, if he is the Holy One of God, as even a demon acknowledges, then what does that mean for my life if I were to follow him? Jesus scared the stuffing out of my friend. He didn't really question Jesus' power or authority. He actually saw that. That made sense to him. But it scared him. And he wasn't alone. Yeah, I was scared at first, too. We're scared because following Jesus means being broken out of our comfort with sin, out of our comfortable sins that we commit. Gosh, the people in the synagogue got to see it. After all, Jesus walked into a synagogue that had a demon-possessed man. And it's only when Jesus speaks that the demon has any problems at all. How many sermons had this demon sat through without any problem at all? But in walks Jesus, and everything changes. The demon panic as it sees the Holy One of God, and with a word, Jesus silences it and casts him out. He drives the evil out. That is what the authority of Jesus is all about right there. And we can be nervous at the thought of following Jesus and what that means. The power of God can be a scary thing to behold, but the truth is, we find out that Jesus uses his authority not to bring about fear, but to bring about healing. But we don't see it at first because we're so blinded by our fear that we can't understand that Jesus came to give us life, to cast out our sin, to perform the, the greatest miracle of all, replacing a heart of stone with one of flesh, to bring people from death to life. That's what my friend found out. 
Eventually, he did submit to Jesus, and he has told me repeatedly since then how Jesus has not only given him answers to his questions, but he's brought him so much healing and joy. That's what Jesus does. And he did it for this demon-possessed man. By the word of his power, he casts out the demon and grants this broken, possessed man a new life. Jesus takes his power, his authority, to take what is broken and to make it whole. It's what he does. And it happens more often than we realize. We miss it because we keep thinking that Jesus having power only means the flashy miracles. The healings and, and that sort of thing. And those are great, don't get me wrong. But we keep searching for those so much that we miss the miracle of his word capturing our hearts. And that with his word he drives away darkness and sin, and with his word, he makes people new again. It brings people to finally see their own sinfulness and to meet one who's even more powerful than that, who's powerful enough to forgive it and to put it away. It is the power of Jesus to bring people to himself, to bring us to repentance and faith in him. And yes, it can seem scary at first, but ultimately we find out that he has come in power and authority for our good. That he takes what is broken and makes it whole. He takes what is unclean and washes it white as snow. And he takes what is dead and gives it life. He brings the kingdom of God. He calls his people to wholehearted belief. And he captures our hearts by his powerful, divine, authoritative word. That sounds like someone worth following. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus and that he is one worth following. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do just that, that you would help us to follow him all the days of our life, that you would bring those of us who don't know him from death to life. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the work that you do in us, and we praise you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.